0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 49, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, the second continuation. So to begin... Our study of Revelation chapter 21 today. I want to begin by quoting um, Paul in Romans. you know, because in some ways, he kind of sums up what we've discussed in the last couple of weeks. In Romans 8:19 through 24, he says this, and just look up here and, and hear this: "The creation waits eagerly." for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was made subject to frustration not willingly but because of the one who subjected it but it, creation was given a reliable hope that it too would be set free from its bondage to decay and it would enjoy the freedom accompanying the glory that God's children will have We know that until now the whole creation has been groaning as with the pains of childbirth. Not only it, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we continue waiting eagerly to be made sons. That is, to have our whole bodies redeemed and set free. It was in this hope that we were saved. See, we've talked much about the Genesis creation because Revelation 21 tells us about the re-creation. And there are definite differences between it and the original creation. We learn that just as the original creation involved creating the entire universe, including earth, so does the recreation. And one of our areas of discussion last week was how the Lord included a certain set of freedoms within the original creation so that it, within limits, could itself create. Another topic was how, whether from Adam's sin or from divine plan, the whole creation, all of it, is under bondage to decay and thus its eventual death is a certainty. So Paul says that it is not only mankind that is in desperate need of redemption and renewal but also everything of a physical nature that exists in the entire cosmos. Therefore the hope of our own personal salvation extends far beyond ourselves or even humanity. Now what Paul explained would happen John now sees in a powerful vision. Okay. What they both record for us is still far into our future well over a thousand years from now because the of Of the existing earth and universe and its replacement with a new earth and universe occurs at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ that I have been referring to as the millennial kingdom. And when exactly that begins, we don't know if one is of the premillennial doctrinal belief, but if one is of the amillennial, then you believe that the thousand year reign of Christ began 2,000 years ago at the foot of the cross and it continues indefinitely and the new heavens and new earth are just mostly symbolism. Now as concerns Revelation chapters 20, 21 and 22 we have to be a little bit cautious about how to envision the timing and the sequence of these several monumental events that lay out the final moments of history and the entry into an entirely new reality. Is it after the conclusion of the thousand years that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, or does it happen in the final moments of a millennial kingdom? Does the second resurrection happen before or after Satan's demise? And in the same light, does the great white throne judgment mark the end of the millennium or is it something that happens a little later? See, here's another question to ponder. When God melts the current earth and universe back to its elements and reforms it, where are all the people going to be? And is this melting and reforming nearly instantaneous? Or does it occur similarly to the original creation in that it was a process occurring over time, a short time if you adhere to a young earth creation doctrine or a very long time if you adhere to an old earth creation doctrine? None of that is addressed in Revelation. So all we have biblically is speculation that I'd rather not spend much time with. So as we continue today, while some of your questions may be answered, many more probably won't be. Now, as but the briefest digest of the first four verses of Revelation 21, we find that the old, the current, earth and universe have been done away with, And the creation of a new earth and a new heaven have happened. Now I want to remind you that in this case heaven is referring to the universe, not the spiritual place where God and the angels live. The new heavenly Jerusalem has descended upon the new earth and it is described as being like a bride prepared for her husband. A booming voice from heaven has announced that God will now live with his peoples, plural. This statement means that God in all of his essences will literally exist alongside and with his worshipers. No barriers of any kind will extend to separate his worshippers from him. And by using the term peoples, laoi, in in Greek, which is a plural, it means that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth, all races, ethnicities, languages, all, not just Israelites, will be blessed through him. And now it's happened. Finally, in verse 4, we're told that death and its accompanying fears and sorrows are a thing of the past. This is because the old order has passed away, we're told. What's the old order? Well, first of all, it represents all the characteristics of the original Creation, chief among them being that mankind is part of a universe of opposites. Second is that the divine order of things was written down, it was summed up in the Torah and in the Law of Moses. It is a specific order that includes how humans are to relate to God and to one another and what to do when we fail. Both of these main attributes of the old order are now gone upon the recreation. So the new heavens and earth will not endure both life and death, only life. The new heavens and earth will not harbor both good and evil, only good. And as we continue studying the final two chapters of Revelation, we're going to see other aspects of the recreation spelled out that demonstrate that the governing dynamics of universal opposites will end and is going to be replaced with something else. Now we've read through Revelation 21 a couple of times, so let's just read it in sections as appropriate. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. 5 through 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to be on page 1554. 1554. Then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Also, he said, Write, these words are true and trustworthy. And he said to me, It's done. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end, and to anyone who is thirsty, I myself will give water free of charge from the fountain of life. He who wins the victory will receive these things, I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the untrustworthy, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those involved with the occult and with drugs, idol worshippers and all liars, their destiny is the lake burning with fire and sulfur, the second death. Back in chapter 20, verse 11, we were told that the one, titled the one, sitting on the great white throne, watched as earth and the heavens fled his presence. We discussed at that time that most of Christianity says that the person on the throne is Jesus. Jesus. However, I told you it's the Father, and I gave you various proofs for it. Here in chapter 21, verse 5, the term the one sitting on the throne appears again, and embedded within the actions taken are some attributes concerning who this person is. And first, it's important to notice that for the first time in this chapter, it is God himself that is speaking. Because his words are given to us in the first person. I, me. And what he says sounds familiar. Because we read something similar in the first chapter of Revelation. In Revelation eight, he says, I am the A and the Z says Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who is, who was, and who is coming. So the God who is overseeing the new earth and heavens is the same God that oversaw the beginning as well as the one who inspired his faithful worshiper, the Apostle John. And God says that he's making everything new. In fact, that he is recreating everything everything new is emphasized by his intervening in John's vision telling John to be sure to write this down why? because these words are true and they're trustworthy then as if to underline it all God says it's done it ain't gonna change that is, since everything is new, the recreation is complete and every aspect now of redemption is complete. The one sitting on the throne goes on to say that he is the A and C, the beginning and the end, as in Revelation eight. All of these named attributes and descriptions have been regularly used, Old and New Testaments, of the Father. Now we can also know that since the subject is the new earth and new heavens, regardless of exact timing or sequence, prior to the recreation of the universe, Christ gives back his own ruling authority to the father first corinthians fifteen twenty three through twenty six but each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming. Then the culmination when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. After having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power. For he has to rule until he puts all all his enemies under his feet And the last enemy to be done away with will be death. So the one sitting on the throne is doubtless the Father and we don't have to wonder which person of God is being referred to here. When Christ is also involved, He'll be mentioned separately as the Lamb usually. Now, what else is important to understand is that God is reminding folks that while everything has been made new, He hasn't. He is the same God. He is of the same substance. He is the one who created the original creation. He is the God who exists when nothing else does. So along with the new creation does not come a new, renewed, or different God. It will be we, us, everything else about the cosmos that's changed, but not Him. The ending words of verse 6 ought to be familiar to many especially to the seed of Abraham local congregation because I speak them at every Sukkot celebration. God says that to everyone who is thirsty he will give water free of charge from the fountain of life. Listen to this excerpt from the Gospel of John. Since the same John wrote both the Apocalypse and the Gospel then we should expect to encounter similar thoughts and wording in them. In John 7, 37 and 38, Now on the last day of the festival, Hoshana Rabbah, Yeshua stood out and cried, If anyone is thirsty, let him keep coming to me and drinking. Whoever puts his trust in me, as the scriptures say, rivers of living water will flow from his inmost being. Essentially, in using those words about water from the fountain of life, God is rephrasing the gospel. Since the new heavens and earth have already been created, then certainly its inhabitants are in no need of hearing this. Therefore, we should take this sentence as a kind of parenthesis that is aimed at the audience of John's revelation in John's time and then on into the future. You know, I just love that the word free or gift is included in what God says. The Greek word is dorian. And while it indeed means a gift... Without cost, it also inherently includes the sense of this gift being undeserved, unmerited. And yet, not everyone, of course, will get such benefits as being eternally with God. Let me pause here to mention something. Notice where it is that God says He will be. He will be with His peoples on the new earth. This is important in a couple of different ways. First is that His peoples will not be divided up into different realities depending on which people group they belong. That is, whether formerly Israelite, or Gentile all will live with God second is that believers will not be living forever in heaven with God a statement made rather routinely by believers given at the pulpit is that when we die we go to heaven and we're there eternally that is not scripturally accurate So many Christians have visions of us floating endlessly forever on heavenly clouds, lounging at will, looking down at the hapless individuals still running around on the treadmill of life. Evangelical Christians especially like to say that heaven is our home and not earth. And yet Revelation teaches us all during the thousand year reign of Christ most believers are going to live on planet earth and earth will exist more or less precisely as it is today and now in chapter 21 we learn that when the old earth is done away with and replaced with a new one we'll all live there eternally not in heaven Thus we need to view heaven in a similar, though not precise, way as the ancient Hebrews viewed Abraham's bosom. As a temporary place of safety and shelter until God completes his work of redemption. Upon Christ's first coming, he delivered those righteous souls held captive in Abraham's bosom by allowing them to transfer, if you would, to heaven after Yeshua descended to proclaim himself to the captives in validation of their trust for salvation in the God of Israel. Upon Messiah's second coming and the first resurrection the souls temporarily residing in heaven will be sent back to earth in glorified bodies to live out the millennial kingdom period with Him. Now, I'm assuming that souls of the regular humans who live and die during the millennial kingdom period will reside in heaven until the second resurrection. And then from that moment forward, heaven will Will be forever empty of human souls. Verse 7 of Revelation 21 explains just who is going to receive these wonderful rewards of faithful trusting in Christ during their lifetimes. It is, it says, He or they who win the victory now where have we heard that before? in the letters to the seven believing congregations of Asia Revelation 2.7 those who have ears let them hear what the spirit is saying to the messianic communities to him winning the victory I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in God's Ghani Den, Garden of Eden Revelation 2.26 to him who wins the victory and does what I want until the goal is reached, I'll give him authority over the nations. Revelation three five. He who wins the victory will like them be dressed in white clothing and I will blot not blot his name out of the book of life. In fact, I will acknowledge him individually before my father and before his angels. See, there's a number of promises of rewards made to believing victors or overcomers in the letters to the seven churches. Some of them are the tree of life will be available to them. They will be part of the new order of temple. They will be part of a new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. They will have God's name written on them. They will be excluded from the second death. God also promises that every victor will be seen as a son to him. However, for those who are not faithful to him, there's another and different set of promises. Ominous ones to be sure. An abbreviated list is supplied in the second part of verse 8 and in some ways it is terrifying even to believers because perhaps we can be brave enough to look into a mirror and say to ourselves but I've done these things. Two quick points about that. First, forgiveness through our trust in God and in His Son wipes out the penalty for those sins. And second, we must look at this list less as a list of behaviors and more as a list of freely chosen identities and lifestyles. That is, rather than our having committed one or more of these sins at some time, this list is about those who have turned themselves over to these sins. They revel in these sins, making these sins part of who they are. So it's not so much what someone has done as who they are. Now the list of those excluded from God's deliverance and therefore being barred from this new paradise begins with what the complete Jewish Bible says are the cowardly. Now while David Stern may be right to choose the English word cowardly that is not what the Greek lexicons say that the Greek word "deilos" means. Rather, more literally, it means timid or fearful, not cowardly. Now, I'm not sure why someone who is timid and fearful would be excluded. However, when we find this word used in the New Testament in Matthew 8.26 and its parallel in Mark Four forty. it is directly connected with having little faith. And interestingly, these passages about that were said in rebuke to Christ's disciples. So the idea seems to be believers allowing their fears to overcome their faith. What is that? It's the exact opposite of perseverance. With little else to go on or to otherwise rationally explain why being fearful or perhaps a coward would exclude one from eternal life with God I must assume that this category of the excluded is directed towards believers or would-be believers who are so weak in their faith that they just easily fall away in times of trial and tribulation. I mean, after all, the first list that was about rewards was promised to who? Those who win the victory that we find in the letters to the seven churches. And then now the second list that immediately follows it represents the other end of the stick punishments punishments promised to those who come up short and who do not win the victory so without further evidence I think that this is what this first identity or characteristic on the excluded list is trying to get across to us now the second characteristic or identity concerns the untrustworthy and the Greek word being translated here is apistos and it means unbelieving without faith apistos and it refers to blatant unbelievers those who have never accepted the redemption of God's Lamb and in my opinion it backs up my contention that the first on the list the fearful or the cowardly speaks about believers, although marginal or wannabe believers, who had such small faith and trust that they didn't persevere. Thus, that kind of so-called, so-called believer, as well as now, the openly non-believing individuals, they are excluded from God's presence and eternal grace. The third characteristic or identity is the vile The Greek word is beluso, and it means exceptionally hateful, aberrant, or abominable. It refers to a broad category of the worst of the worst sins and sinners. And since this one may be causing heart palpitations among believers, I want to remind you This is not saying that an abominable sin is an unforgivable sin. In our passage, this is referring to a lifestyle, to a chosen mindset that is loathsome to God. And so that person's life reflects the opposite of holiness and righteousness. The fourth excluded category is murderers. It's pretty straightforward, except to say that these are unrepentant murderers who enjoy preying on others. The fifth is the sexually immoral. Now, the Greek word being translated is pornos, from where we derive the English word pornography. Now, interestingly, pornos is a term applied only to males, most often it is referring to a male prostitute always meaning it in the homosexual sense however, in its most generic, its broadest sense it means having sexual relations of any kind that are immoral and what is immoral, of course is defined by the law of Moses so often in English Bibles Pornos gets translated as fornicator. However, that's actually kind of, believe it or not, it's kind of a nicer, milder way of sort of avoiding the intent, which is frankly to call out gay males. (laughs) The sixth exclusion is what the complete Jewish Bible says: is those who misuse drugs in connection with the occult. Now, most English Bibles would just say sorcerers. In Greek, the word is pharmakeia, and it means one who prepares magical remedies. So David Stern has it right. It involves drugs and the occult. Now, because of books like the Harry Potter series, we sort of laugh off the idea of sorcery and wizardry thinking it's kind of fun and harmless. However, it's a very serious matter before the Lord. And you know, I wish parents who either encourage or at least accept their children reading those sorts of books that they would consider this before making that decision. It's not that the child is going to necessarily become an excluded sorcerer, but anyone who doesn't believe in slippery slopes simply hadn't lived long enough to know that they're a fact of life often unavoidable when some indulgences are entertained. The seventh one is called idolatry and the Greek word is idolatry. and it indeed means the worship of false gods. Now interestingly that same word in Greek is used in the Bible of a man who craves money and all the decadent things of the world. So as we've seen throughout God's word, one cannot devote their lives to acquiring all the extravagant things of the world and at the same time seek God. We are fooling ourselves when we try. This doesn't mean that should God decide to bless us with plenty that we're somehow displeasing Him it's an issue of our priorities Matthew 6.31-33 so don't be anxious asking what will we eat what will we drink, how will we be clothed for it is the pagans who set their hearts on all these things your heavenly Father knows you need them all but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then all these things will be given to you as well. Well, the eighth and final excluded category or identity is being a liar. Now, the Greek word is pseudos, and it actually means to be deceitful. So perhaps a better English translation than liar is deceiver the chief attribute of Satan deceitfulness and darkness goes hand in hand in the Bible because their sources are spiritual while especially the first category now of excluded people in this verse is likely speaking about those who profess Christianity this eighth one may be aiming at them as well. See, false doctrine is deceit. And to John, the traditions of the elders that were at the heart of the synagogue system that dominated Jewish religion in the first century pointed people away from Yeshua as the Messiah and he considered it deceit. During my years of study and research, I have found that much false doctrine is probably intentional. Or maybe it comes from willful ignorance in that it serves a man defined purpose. Some doctrinal errors is just that it's just error, it is just likely poor understanding of the Holy Scriptures. See, there were many false messiahs and false apostles that proclaimed false doctrines running around in John's time as Christ warned there were and would be. Just as today, there are many false teachers and preachers of false doctrines who claim to be doing God's work but in fact are primarily seeking an opportunity to acquire personal wealth, and power. The fate of the people from all these eight categories of sinful identities was that they would be thrown into the lake of fire and suffer the second death. This would be the eternal condition for them. Of which, by the way, the Bible makes clear they will remain entirely conscious. That is scary. So let's read a little more of chapter 21. We're going to read verses 9 through 14 of Revelation chapter 21. One of the seven angels, having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, approached me. And said, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me off in the spirit to the top of a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It had the Shekinah of God so that his brilliance was like that of a priceless jewel, like a crystal clear diamond. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, And at the gates were twelve angels, and inscribed on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates to the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, three gates to the west. The wall of the city was built on twelve foundation stones, and on these were the twelve names of the twelve emissaries of the Lamb." Now, although it's been a while since we've talked about Babylon, we shouldn't lose track that like with many other sections of the book of Revelation, strong contrasts are set up between that which is godly and that which is of the adversary. The New Jerusalem is the godly contrast to the wicked Babylon. Listen to the first three verses of Revelation chapter 17 concerning Babylon and, now, and then notice the similarity to chapter 21 verses 9 and 10 concerning the new Jerusalem. Here's Revelation chapter 17 starting in verse 1. Then came one of the angels with the seven bowls. And he said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is sitting by many waters. The kings of the earth went whoring with her, and the people living on earth have become drunk from the wine of her whoring. He carried me off in the spirit to a desert, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast filled with blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns." More precisely, the opening of Revelation chapter 17 speaks about the whore of Babylon, while chapter 21 of Revelation verses 9 and 10 speak about who? The bride of the Lamb. So the descriptions of each are personified by women. In the first case, it speaks of a woman who desires everything this world and Satan has to offer, while the woman in the second case speaks of a woman, the bride, that is pure and godly and seeks only after God and the Lamb. A contrast. Now it's from this same group of angels who carry out the bold judgments that one, re- one of them reveals the future to John about the whore of Babylon and also the bride of the Lamb. It is the same group of angels that carried John off in spirit to see the evil nature of the whore of Babylon that also carries John off to witness the descending of the new holy Jerusalem. Now biblically, and often practically I think, the origin of a thing defines the nature and sometimes the fate of that thing. The origin of Babylon the Great is wicked humanity. The origin of the new Jerusalem is heaven, so it bears heaven's nature, but it's not heaven. What it is, is the ideal Jerusalem, the ideal abode of God's ideal people. It is not the old Jerusalem that ascended up to heaven to get cleaned up, a new paint job, and sent back down. It is a Jerusalem that has been created by God in the spiritual realm. And since it's descending from heaven, then its physical nature could be, and most often is, Taken most symbolically, although some room has to be allowed. I mean, think about this for a minute of what physical amounts to in the new Earth and universe, because it could be entirely unlike anything we would deem as physical today. So rather than being symbolic, perhaps this new Jerusalem in the way it's described to John just uses the best words available at his time in history to describe this new reality that has just descended to earth. Now while the new Jerusalem is primarily about the redeemed people who live in it, nonetheless the vivid descriptions of the city itself tell us that the infrastructure is important as well. And we're told that it shines, the city shines with God's glory. So if we take the Hebrew word Shekinah to be the, the divine personification of the glory or the splendor of God, then we won't be too far off the mark to understand what it means by its brilliance and its radiance. John compared it to a giant, perfect diamond. The city had gates, 12 of them. Each gate was named for one of the tribes of Israel. The city was a square. Each side had had three gates. The walls were held up by underlying foundation stones, 12 of them. And they were named for the 12 disciples as believers we need to face New Jerusalem sounds awfully Jewish but I confess sadly most Christian commentaries I've researched simply dismiss this fact and they appropriate the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 Jewish disciples to the Gentile church so for them The gates and the foundation stones have nothing to do with Israel even though it's said over and over again in Revelation but instead it represents the Christian church. Now the other mistaken church doctrine that is regularly put forward about the New Jerusalem of chapter 21 is that it is what we read about in the final chapters of Ezekiel. It is also commonly said that what Ezekiel writes about in that regard is entirely symbolic so it's spiritualized and it has no basis in reality a couple of things first of all, the Jerusalem that Ezekiel writes about beginning Ezekiel 40 is mostly about the temple the temple and that is where most of his attention is focused the temple yet Revelation 21 22 says that the new Jerusalem that John sees has no temple and it is not because John chooses not to address the temple of the new earth but rather that the existence of a temple is part of the old order And so the new order doesn't have one. Second of all, the temple that Ezekiel writes about in his book can be only one thing. The temple of the millennial kingdom when the old order still reigns. Sacrifices continue to occur. You can read about them. On your own time, open up and just read Ezekiel 40-48. through You'll find even that a Levite priesthood still exists because after the millennium, only after it, will the earth never again have a temple. Okay, we'll continue with Revelation 21 next time.